0: To the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Daniel Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking by Ira Henry Freeman. We're on the ninth story, and this is the tenth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 9. The Downhill Run by Richard Morey Smooth sailing through tropic seas under smiling skies, from one paradisical island to another, that's what armchair yachtsmen dream about, it is not often realised at sea. Richard Maury tells of 19 such blissful days, coasting down the southeast trade winds from the Galapagos to the Marcheses, aboard his 35-foot Nova Scotian schooner, Simba. The cruise, begun in 1933, was not all easy downhill runs. Maury's first two companions were drowned in Long Island Sound before the voyage was fairly started. Many a man would have quit at such thunder on the left. Maury merely paused for obsequies, the voyage ended two years later on a coral reef off Suva. The schooner, refitted with incredible labour and Maury's bottom dollar, was lost again and irretrievably to local bureaucrats. By that time, the skipper was sick and tired of the whole business, so he went home to write up this account of golden days. It was during the afternoon of August the 2nd that the Galapagos were dropped and the Simba began a 3,000-mile run for the Marchese island, far down the South Seas, began with the trade winds yet some distance away, with the swell gentle, the breezes head-on and sweeping out of a murky sea, fretfully colouring the horizon. As far as was known, the best time over this more or less popular passage was that of 23 days made by a large schooner yacht, a record we prophesied the Laracar again could break if she pulled decent winds. But long ago we decided that the Simba, The smallest to attempt the crossing, could also make a fair showing. Not a better one perhaps, but one almost as good as that of larger craft. And it was with this very much in mind that we entered the routine of the voyage. The idea of a cruising vessel racing against time rather than running easily to the south seas is not a strange one. To show a craft in her best light to use efficiently all of her incessant effort over water brings to the crew of a racer or cruiser a more healthy discipline, smarter seamanship. In this case it was hardly presumptuous of us to attempt approaching the time of the big schooner, for larger vessels rarely find enough wind over this area, while the Simba, underrigged though she was, had an unusual ability to plane behind the kick of moderate waves. Further, to drive her was no harder than letting her lag, Every sail was inboard, easy to handle, snug. The arduous spirit of the ocean racer was here, the difficult, back-breaking work missing. But whatever hopes we held seemed doomed to end at the very beginning. We could not draw the favourable trades, and for the important first week, worked the rolling schooner through calms and headwinds, stealing only a little longitude over the wide curve of ocean. With dismay, we noted the growth of weed along the waterline, choking the overloaded hull in the waning winds of August. A passage of forty days, not twenty-three, appeared the best we could expect. Then one night, we saw the last of the moon, to be left hanging over a stilled darkness until morning, when, quite suddenly, draughts of wind struck the port quarter from the east-southeast. They held direction, slowly increased, pushed booms against backstays, and brought us into the trade belt, 500 miles from the Galapagos. The southeast trade winds, waning with the season, were not ever constant. They veered south and stiffened, backed east and lightened, blew with some vigor at dawn only to diminish before noon, to lie low until early night, when they might tighten and hold before becoming the ghosts of the middle watch. Sometimes stray squalls would break them up, sometimes they disappeared entirely, perhaps to give way to the short-lived headwinds that were in turn conquered by the eventual return of southerly draughts. Nevertheless, the weather that had been dull, cold and overcast gave way to strong sunshine, and it was as though a dark spring was over and summer beginning. With the trades more or less aft, the foresail was dropped and one of the wing sails sheeted home to its red-painted boom, ballooned over the bow. For all the pull to these sails they could not be hung out together without dousing the mainsail, and as that was an impractical move, the Simba carried but two sails on the fore and one on the main. In the first four days of wind she logged 147, 158, 170 and 141 miles. To us this was excellent work, but we knew that to approach the time of the large yacht, she would have to average more than 140 miles a day out to the Marcheses, and that she would have to be very constant during the more aimless hours and make real time in the first five hours after sunrise and in the first five after dark, all of which sounded very fine and extremely improbable. The days of self-steering were over. Only for seconds at a time did the helm go unattended as we lengthened the wheel tricks. The watch came on in the morning carrying his breakfast to the steering well. At noon, his lunch was handed up and he remained in the well until 6 in the evening when, after 12 hours at the helm, he was relieved by the other man. At midnight, the man who had been on all day took the tiller again, tending ship until 6, then to be relieved after 18 hours of duty in 24. Now aside from a few chores, he was free throughout the day, justifying, we thought, the watch system in the Simba. Experiments in reversing the procedure giving a long watch below at night were unsuccessful. To the helmsman, sunrise to sunset seemed shorter than sunset to sunrise, while neither of us found trouble sleeping night or day. A typical day running down the southeast trades. At six o'clock sharp, the man about to take over is roused from the swaying bunk, perhaps by the bell overhead, possibly by the helmsman, sleepy-eyed and powdered by a thin coating of salt taken on in the night, shaking him by the shoulder. Turn out, turn out, time's up. Or rise and shine on the workhouse line. As usual, it has been cool enough to sleep all standing under the blanket that the man now casts aside. The cabin is still not fully lighted, although fresh shafts of sunlight dip through the ports and a running pattern of water light plays on the overhead. With an effort, He jumps up, goes to the roaring Swedish stove, and pours some tea into a large tin cup. The tea is strong, and taking the cup and a handful of ship biscuits, dry or with marmalade, he makes a studied way aloft, joining the helmsman, who somehow looks as though he had held the deck since the beginning of the voyage. How has it been? the newcomer asks. Middling, easy from two on, and freshened at dawn. What average? About five and a half. Well, take it. West by south. West by south, all mine. Left alone, the man holds the tiller in one hand, the teacup in the other. He is not fully awake and sniffs deeply of the pungent salt always strongest at this hour, sniffs also of other odours, of damp paint wetted by night dew, of saturated cordage and sailcloth. But the fragrance of the tea is supreme, and he holds it near while his eyes leave the compass and take in the schooner, then wander over the ocean that is gleaming, sharp-cut, a blue glow lifting with the light, and so fresh that it is as though creation had taken place a moment before. Over his shoulder, the sun that had been red and heavy expands and begins circling the sky. Grey horizon clouds break up, turn white, and start across the sky. The day is well underway. The new helmsman sets his teacup aside, perches on the weather rim of the steering well, which happens to be the port side, and adjusting the foot brace within the well to meet the angle of the diving craft, settles down to the task before him. By ten o'clock, the sun is overhead, the helmsman beginning to feel its heat. Off comes jacket and shirt to leave his body an almost native colour from many watches, protected only by shorts or a pair of cut-down dungarees, he wears no cap, but, leaning overside, wets a large towel and winds it about his head like a turban, arranging it so that a dangling tail protects the nape of his neck. Every so often he clamps the tiller in the comb to pour a bucket of cool seawater over himself, then several more upon the steaming decks. The white of the cabin tops and the raised foredeck he wets thoroughly, but the buff coloured waterways and after decks are the main consideration. They are possibly ten degrees warmer than the white surfaces and sting the soles of his bare feet. And now, all ropes contracted by the night's moisture begin to slack off. They must be taken up, but not brutally, and all at once, lest the sail roping be stretched and the sails lose shape and set. And so the helmsman unties the main rope hitched to his waist and carefully overhauls all working halyards. The wing-boom brace, the preventer, even the lifelines drooping over the stays. Only the rigging lanyards of Italian hemp, more or less impervious to the night, he leaves alone. Returning to the well, he fastens the man-rope about his waist, but no sooner has this precaution been taken than the wind shifts a quarter point. He eases the mainsheet, goes forward and adjusts the wingsail. Again he overhauls the halyards, secures them to the pins with by-the-wind hitches. Coiling the running parts with the sun, flaking them down on the cabin tops. At the tiller once more, he looks for wind changes over what seem to be two distinct oceans one, the area to starboard and off the bows, away from the sun, which is gay, deeply blue, sharply defined, and the other, to port and astern, sunwards, which is not blue at all, but only a harsh glare of waves rising and rolling, sunlighted, heated, wind blown. There is no change in sight, so lowering his eyes he gives attention to the black diamond point on an already yellowing compass card. He regards it gravely, with the gaze of a seer into a crystal. Surely he is in a trance as he leans unblinkingly over the little glass instrument, his body wiry, dark, his white turban nodding ever so slightly. But no, suddenly he looks to the weather sea, his glance slowly circling the points of wind effort until gaining the bows. There the hollowed scoop of wing sail is ballooning, apparently pulling like a team of horses, responsible for all those vicious lunges of the bows. But he is not deceived and looks almost affectionately at the mainsail, that small conservative spread that is accounting for six of the eight knots. From compass to sea, from sea to sails, his eyes wander untiringly. As all the while he keeps balance, eternally adjusting his back to the changing angles of the deck, not to the slow slanting of a big vessel, but to the lightning-quick dives, the rapid pitches of a lively schooner smoking her way westward, a clean-cut, white sail lost in blue sunlight. Her stern sinks, the furious little bow slashes, noses, lifts, drops, and the stern rises high, do or die. The scene changes as the sun reaches Zenith, for, as usual, the trades have eased considerably and the sea is looser, less blue. It's time for the noon sight, always taken by Dombey, always well taken, and we are together on deck. Although that line trailing over the stern is not a log line, but a trawl having yet to hook a fish, we have definite opinions on the day's run. Time has helped us gauge distances the reckonings of which we pass between us, watch to watch, until noon hour, when, after allowing for drift, they are added together and compared against solar observations. With practice this system has become more satisfactory than the results from two patent logs, now discarded, and on the present passage we had yet to be more than two or three miles out. So as the sun steepens, one of us estimates the distance run from the last noon at 138 miles, the other, at a mile or so more. The sun is taken, and then after a short interval, we learn that actually 141 miles have been put behind. The helmsman stays at his post unrelieved, the man below handing up the lunch before disappearing for the afternoon. There are several tough planks of the eternal ship biscuit, a little salmon, but today, instead of tea or cocoa, there is only the daily ration of lime juice and water, somewhat sugared, a sea tonic of old with a citric tang, giving the illusion of a cool drink. The meal over, he douses the tinware in the wake, then puts it by until going off watch. He observes that all at once the golden clear weather has given place to a diffused glare, that the sea is moving in slower rhythms. This is not necessarily a bad omen, for it happens almost every day. The trades are now dragging over the wavetops in puffs but then they are always made up of puffs, even at their strongest, when the variations are almost indiscernible, for, correctly speaking, there are no steady trade winds. His back still sways, as though he were riding a swing, and the tiller feels hot in his palms. The schooner forges over the sea, slower now, her masts moving pendulum-like, with the precision and the majesty of a big ship's spars. An hour of lassitude is setting in, affecting the wind and the sleepy sea, the sails and the helmsman himself. He is in a warmed loneliness, feeling an outstretched isolation without distaste, without conscious revolt. In the idle moment he hears the voices of the shore. Isn't the monotony great? In one of the lockers of the well lies a book, for some reading was done at the helm in the Caribbean. It is a good tale, and yet it has not been opened. Perhaps monotony is what one makes it, because there is no monotony in the real sense at sea, no boredom at least. You should have a radio, the voices again. But somehow there is no desire for a wireless, no craving to be further amused, no desire at all to be in touch with that which was intentionally left behind. The sun makes Westing, and the scene changes again. It is softer now, and somehow the sea looks cooler, almost cold, where the lips of waves spit white in the cloud shadows of navy, marching down sea. The shade from the canvas begins to slant aft over the buff decks, darkening one rail, one track of wash. Suddenly, the wind veers two points, and the watch hand over hands the main sheet, then jumps forward to tend the wing. Before he returns, it has veered yet more, and the sails are further sweated in. Half an hour passes, and then the schooner still struggling with cat's paws, is on a beam wind, her wing no longer of any use. How can she be helped? The man notches the tiller, goes forward, takes in the sail, sets the jib, raises the wing to the mainmast cap, secures its tack to the foremost foot and sheets home. Now he handles the craft, suddenly converted to staysail schooner, but still unsatisfied, breaks out the fisherman's staysail, seldom used. He is not content, more can be done, for the jib is not up to the mark at all. He begins some complicated work in the bows, interrupting it ever so often to adjust the tiller, guarding himself from a false step or a stumble as he goes. Soon one of the wingsail poles has been run out over the bows to serve as a long jury bowsprit, fastened at the bitter end to the foremost, bowsed against the jibstay, and guide by a pair of lines leading from its cap to the chainplates. Upon this contrivance, he sets the second wing sail, sheets it far aft and returns triumphantly to the tiller, to tend a staysail schooner now equipped with a bowsprit and a stout genoa jib. Ten miles on and the wind backs to its old position, the sail spread collapses, the jackass rig is taken in and the wing put in its former position. With his hands smarting just a little from pulley hauling on salted line, the helmsman reclines still swaying in the steering well, his eyes on the compass. The sun flashes on the sea and the watch, for the first time remembering the sunglasses in one of the lockers, takes them out and puts them on. As usual, they are not satisfactory while underway and are shortly abandoned in favour of a straw hat bought in Portobello and now replacing the turban. The wind drops and the sound of a thousand breaking waves comes in more clearly to be answered from on board by the occasional thud of the striving bow, by the cough of a block. Two hours pass, and the sun is feeling for the horizon. For quite a while, the wind has drawn off beneath the water-painted sky, leaving the sea old, affable and almost painted. No longer is there noise, either from the ocean or the ship, still gliding for all she is worth, silent and intent. Finally the sun fetches the horizon, Masses of colour begin to burn over the masts, and the helmsman, looking at a dollar pocket watch kept in the well, sees it is six o'clock. Going to the companion, he calls down his important fact. Startled by hearing another human voice, he smells the odour of cooking food, and goes back to the tiller. Although his trick is really over, he will have a last twenty minutes on deck, holding a sort of dog watch while the relief has his meal in comfort. He sees the sun dip under the skyline, brightening the clouds for a last time. Then the colours fade and soon the schooner is moving through twilight. He feels something cool strike his back and turns to discover long fingers of wind moving rapidly over water, dark and ruffled. The sails fill. The schooner pushes on, her decks only a matter of inches above sea, shuffling water. In no time at all, the wake is boiling. And the helmsman must heave on a rigid tiller presently he takes the short oaken extension and sockets it over the tiller head to get more leverage the tropic twilight a mood of only a moment gives in to darkness the freshening trades shift a quarter point and he goes forward to adjust the wing by now the white housing underfoot has turned dingy and the sea sweeps to the horizons in one dark shadow As he leans over the lifeline's feeling for the brace, he thinks for the first time that day how small, how fragile is the slanting hull, the only object that could float him within a thousand miles. Why, in the dusk, even these seas appear ready to overwhelm it. This of all hours is the one that touches his sense of mortality. When the wind, acquiring an almost melodramatic quality, drives coldly against him, and tries to press him back to dimmed, half-forgotten states of superstition. The one hour that, regardless of how long he has sailed, he never quite takes for granted. Trimming the wing, he passes cautiously back to the well, now occupied by a dark figure nursing an after-supper pipe. The relief has turned up. After a word or two, the man takes his tin plate, cup and jacket, and goes below. Twelve hours and twenty minutes ago, the time he was last in the cabin, the little Swedish stove was hissing away in its asbestos niche, just as it is now. Seating himself before it, he fills his cup with hot cocoa and finds another handful of ship biscuit. But his meal is not the sketchy affair of the previous ones, for there is a stew of beef, onions and potatoes, enough for two men, and to round it off, half a tin of Singapore pineapple. As there is no such thing as a mess table in a very small ocean schooner, he sits on the seat opposite the bunk, and holding the plate in his lap, continues to sway to the rhythms of the craft. When finished, he takes the mess gear to the companion, and without putting foot on deck, reaches far over and douses them in the sea, now black. There are a few entries to be made in the logbook, a journal to be brought up to date, Cutting strips of British Navy tobacco, he loads and lights his faithful pipe. Trimming the old-time lamp from the dark Dorothea, he writes the story of the past 12 hours, rather hurriedly, with extreme economy, alluring to winds by numerals, to seas and courses by initials and abbreviations. Putting all this away, he glances at the chart and, crouching over, adjusts lengthwise a board which changes the bunk into a comfortable oblong box, Pulling on a shirt, he climbs in, and feeling chilly, draws up a blanket, and now to sleep, but no, only to read after all. Fumbling in the bunk, he finds his book, with its two marks showing each man's place, and presently, as a schooner gets underway on one of her five-hour spurts, he wanders from her fighting, which goes on and on, to the supreme luxury of printed pages. Offshore, he cannot read of the sea itself, not even as written by his secret patron saint, Joseph Conrad. Nor, on the other hand, can he read literature drab in contrast with the clean majestic action of the sea. No, these days he wants to hear of nobility, of decent love, of gentleness, and the humble Dickens will charm him as well as any. The book he now reads happens to be Scott's Kenilworth and he is satisfied by its clearly defined heroes and villains. And as a noise, resembling several storms roaring at once, rumbles under the bilges, the boughs pound vigorously, triumphantly, and the bunk lurches, lists, and pitches, he reads, It was thus he avoided Warwick, within whose castle, that fairest monument of ancient and chivalrous splendour, which yet remains uninjured by time, Elizabeth has passed the night. Quite suddenly, the bell sounds, and he awakes, midnight already. Half asleep, he feels for the bell clapper over the bunk, striking an answer. Before turning up the wick and going over to the stove, for the hot tea the helmsman had jumped down to boil. Before sipping the tea, he turns the lamp low, that his eyes will be ready for the deck. The cup empty, he buttons his collar, puts a piece of ginger in his mouth, and feeling the wind of the deck, appears as a welcome apparition to the helmsman who would be quite ready to converse if he didn't know that the last thing the 12-6 to man is capable of is talk. Handing over the woolen windbreaker and a stocking cap, the departing man states the course briefly and makes for the cabin. The new watch usually begins by scooping up seawater to wet his face, then inspecting the trim of the sails and the promise in the weather sky. The bow waves are coughing loudly at the time, for the sea is wilder than during the day, The sails scud like black wings against the stars as the helmsman, knowing the trades have held unusually long, thinks it time something happened. Steadying at course, he reaches inside the binnacle at the extreme end of the after cabin and turns off the little lamp, climbs onto the cabin top and facing aft, steers from stars astern, from Cleopatra's stairs, on one star whose name he does not know, steering a truer course than if he used those forward that time and again are blotted out by rolling sails. For an hour or more no change overtakes the unlighted schooner, whose running lights, except when in traffic, are kept below to save fuel. But at last the helmsman grows restless, and making fast the helm climbs below, returning with a night lunch, a surplus of provisions set aside for the slow-moving ages of the graveyard watch. He is just finishing the sardines and biscuit, when the wind that has held overlong drops suddenly. The sea becomes noisier than ever, the wind slacks yet more, and for two hours nothing happens. Nothing at all. The clouds climb, hiding the stars. A minute after the binnacle has been relighted, a heavy rain begins to fall. There is a cry of wind, the sails are hurled out stiff and the helmsman goes forward to make sure that lines are clear for running, feeling over the deck cautiously, ever on guard against a false move that may spill him. There is an exciting moment as the wing, wet and straining overside, drives its boom into a fast pacing sea. Then the blow loses force and wanders off into space, and the craft labours quite slowly into the rain. The helmsman sighs, takes a sponge and attempts to wipe his face, no longer salted, and to clear the binnacle deadlight as well. His eyes smarting somewhat from the glare, he opens the binnacle and fixes a piece of cardboard, crudely slotted. To show only a narrow arc of the compass over the light. There appears to be no wind, but looking closely he sees that the schooner is making three knots on her reputation. He exchanges his cap for a sou'wester kept in one of the lockers. A hasty glance at the pocket watch shows it's four o'clock. Two hours to go. Shivering slightly in the downpour, he philosophically takes a pinch of Copenhagen, a dark snuff, and fixes his gaze on the watery deadlight. It is an hour and a half later, and there is no change except that the wingsail is missing, and the foresail and jib are aloft, striving in the darkness. The rain which drew off twenty minutes ago is again falling about the wet, almost windless schooner. The watchman has been kept on his feet by light airs, playing from point to point. He was forced to furl the wingsail, and once during a heavy roll, missed a lifeline in the dark and was forced to feel out for a shroud. And now, while the regular sail spread is stretching to a faint beam wind, he once more leans over the compass and mothers the craft westward. Rather hazily, he considers the width of this ocean. Maps and charts make for a sort of sophisticated regard for the wide spaces of the earth, until an entire ocean may be visualised as a few inches of blue ink on the surface of a map. For the sake of argument, muses the helmsman, scale down distance from miles to feet, and on this particular passage the schooner will be seen as but a grain of dust blown slowly over a half-mile plain, a fleck of dust that can cover little more than a hundred feet from sunup to sunup. The rain is stopping, and what is this? The binnacle lamp is becoming dim, and a colourless light is rising all around slowly, out of the darkness grows the familiar outline of cabin tops, decks, masts, colourless, blank and grey, appearing like the forms in a misted photograph. The clouds are parting, are gone, and loose, undeveloped waves also take on grey as a gloomy bar of light comes to float on the eastern skyline. The watch looks on dispassionately. He is thankful for the dawn, but its arrival does not move him, as did the twilight. In fact, in contrast to that hour, this is the time he becomes almost careless, the hour he is most likely to take an unnecessary chance. The light increases, and wet through, he locks the idle helm, stands up, yawns, stretches himself, and stamps his bare feet. His throat, his nostrils, feel stiff with salt. Walking aft, he pulls at the trolling line, and sees the empty lure skim water far astern, then turns and with hands on hip regards the schooner. She is still working on the beam airs, still pressing the issue. Why doesn't she stop for once? With the yellow haze brightening in the east, the man ends his reverie and looks at the time and goes below. The other is sleeping soundly, oblivious of all that has happened since midnight, for on this passage the off man is never roused to handle sail. Taking a match from a waterproof tin, the watchman starts the stove, fills the kettle and sets it to boil. The noise he makes does not disturb the other. Going on deck he finds a great change. The sea has become almost blue, the sky cloudless and slick, the schooner white. While the sun, just cutting the horizon, is shining on the wet uppers of the sails. Remembering the binnacle light, he douses it, takes off sou'wester and coat, and steers ship until, ten minutes later, on looking at the pocket watch, he goes below, shakes the other, and says, Time's up! Reaching deck, he hurriedly strips to the waist, throws the clothes down the hatch, pulls a mop out of the lazarette and begins splashing bucketful after bucketful of seawater onto trunking and decks, leaving the schooner, which is still talking to the sea, to move for herself. Several flying fish, lured by the lighted portholes, lie on deck amidst a school of minnows shipped in one of the healing squalls. When the mop has made the white and yellow paintwork shine in the sun, he lays it on the gallows frame to dry and sets about, coiling down lines of all description. Presently there is a sound from the hatch, and he sees the relief coming up, bearing tea and biscuits, and heading for the steering well. He joins him. How was it? the newcomer asks, staring at the horizon. He seems profoundly amazed, incredulous at something out there. He is sleepy. Broken up, she's lucky if she ran three and a half. But see, there's a nice little wind making in the south. At this the relief wakes up. Oh good, there's some herring below for you. All right, west by south, west by south, all mine. And the watch, after welcoming the new wind slanting over a fresh sea, disappears down the companionway. Working west and south, we drove day after day out to the midway area of our track and began closing in upon the distant islands. The winds neither increased nor grew steadier, and the Simba strove hard for her daily runs. Once, for a night and part of a day, she was almost becalmed, then pulled a wind and made the second and last 170-mile run. Her speed continued to rush through sunsets and sunrises. Her crew learnt several things, for example, that in small cruisers, long passages are the happy passages, where the crew settle down to a lengthy stretch, responding with some perfection to the rhythms of the ocean the constant motions of a ship. We learnt that life was kept full by the schooner herself. We never spoke of her by name, but always as she or her, and we never spoke of her affectionately. At times she maddened us, at times she interested us by her repertoire of tricks, and then again she would amuse us by sporting gestures, stubborn and all her own. She had a kind of humble gallantry, and she was heroic but only as simple fishing folk are heroic. Swinging through a series of 125 mile days of fluky trades, the Simba ran up these successive runs with almost steamboat regularity, 141, 167, 148, 146, 149, 148 miles. And now, despite the increased marine growth on the undersides and the low force of wind, It looked as though the schooner, if her luck held, was at least going to tie the 23-day run of the large yacht. Perhaps she had that luck. The speed lay in the lines of the hull, but the luck might well be in her sails cut from the bolts of the great Lunenberger Bluenose, a charmed fisherman, a fortunate ship notorious for her speed. From dawn to dark her two or three triangles swung over the sea, bellied before the trade, drooped in the variables. A typical entry from my journal. Latitude 6 degrees, 55 minutes south. Longitude 118 degrees, 53 minutes west. Strong trade from sunrise on, blowing hard, turning the sea near black. Squalls from the southeast, before noon killing trade. Bunted wing sail and set foresail as wind hauls aft at noon, no go. Wind shifts and we shift again. Tonight, squalls, lightning and confused sea. With runs of 169 miles, 151, 147, another 147 and 146 miles, the Simba reached for landfall. Then, in something of a spurt, she covered the last miles of open water to make landfall off Uahuka of the Marchese Islands, 19 days from the Galapagos, having averaged 6.4 knots or 150 miles a day through thick and thin, through calm and trade, headweather and fair squalls. There had been no days of particularly favouring weather, and not once were there eight hours of steady wind. A happy trip, almost a remarkable trip, and yet we, the crew, knew how small had been our contribution toward it. We were not deceived. Whatever credit was due went directly to the schooner herself, and from there we trust on to some degree to reflect the honest skill of her lovable builder, Vernon Langell. We raised the mountains of Nukahiva, bore into Teohei Bay and dropped anchors off the village. The sails fell onto salted decks, leaving the bare masts curiously naked and useless. Mystical scents, warm, tropical, came offshore as we felt something leaving us weak, awkward, slightly breathless. And even as we gazed at the green mountains, at the shining cocoa trees, we knew it was only that another voyage had ended. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.